Sarap. To walk through some of the key texts of what we're working on, uh, my goal, as always, is to be helpful to you, to be clear with you, to be compelling, to help you understand the words of Scripture in a way that you can take hold of and do something with them. Sometimes what I say, yes. Sometimes what I say, no. My job is to say what the Father would have me say to you from the Word. So that's what we're giving ourselves to in this time. All right, it's 2015. It's a new year. How many people have the kind of personality that attacks the new year just with wild optimism? So you were up at like 7 a.m. on New Year's Day. By 8 a.m. you were on the treadmill. By 9.30, you had already posted to the blog your five hopes for the new year. By 10.30, you were making progress on your resolutions. The new year is a bull, and you have it by the horns. I'm going to kick the doors off this thing. No one even nodded at me. Okay, so that means many of you have the other personality. That's the one that kind of lounges into the new year. Okay, is that more like you? You didn't wake up until like noon? 2.30 on New Year's Day, you did not get out of your pajamas on New Year's Day, the furthest that you thought was, at some point, I got to take the Christmas tree down. Those are all the plans that I have for my life. Your basic attitude is, the new year is going to be like the old year, so everybody just relax. Whichever way you step into the new year, I hope that you're stepping into it with the hopefulness and an excitement and an energy about what God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, could do, might do in you and in the life of the church that you are a part of. Um, And I want to preach in those directions with you. Anytime we start a new year, a new church year, we like to revisit the mission of why we are giving so much of ourselves to each other and to what we're doing and allow the Word to shape that for us. So here's the question that I want to answer in the time that I have with you today. It's this one. What things need to be true about Seven Mile Road? So in that case, that's me and you and the church that we're a part of. What things need to be true about us this year? And really, this counts for every year going forward, but let's think about this year. If we are going to see gospel renewal sweep through And we say it like this, through our city, meaning the cities that Jesus has sent us to. What's got to be true about us if we're going to actually see gospel renewal take root in newer and deeper ways as a community this year? All right, the Word of God is filled with beautiful answers to this kind of question. We are preaching through the biblical book of Acts, and so what I want to do is zero in on a few of the answers that emerge from this inspired story that we've been learning through of Acts 3 through 5. It's this story about how Jesus, by His Spirit, through His church, triggered a broad, unmistakable, tangible gospel movement. Repentance, forgiveness, healing, joy, unity, generosity, forgiveness, gospel stuff among the people in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole three chapters to you, so real fast, here's the story so that you're situated. Christ had died, 
And then to everyone's surprise, everyone's surprise, Christ had risen from the dead. And then he appeared to his disciples over and over again. And he gave them this wild mission. He said, you are going to be my witnesses in the city of Jerusalem. You're going to declare my gospel there. You're going to call people to repentance and forgiveness, to faith and life in my name. And so his disciples, apostles, Peter and John and 10 others, and their community began to do what Jesus told them to do. And many in Jerusalem believed, and this first little Christian community kind of came into existence, a couple of thousand people strong, out of nowhere. One day, Peter and John are walking into the temple, and there's this crippled beggar. He's never walked before. He asks them for money. Instead, they heal him. It's wild. And immediately, everyone sees it and hears about it. This man that we all know could never walk is running and leaping and praising God. It becomes news throughout the city. The religious leaders then call the apostles in, and they say, How did you do this? And Peter says, it was Jesus. He's risen from the dead. His gospel is true. His kingdom has come, and we're called to tell everybody in this city about it. But the leaders say, no, you don't. You need to stop preaching that gospel. They threaten them, and they send them off. As soon as they leave, They keep preaching that gospel. Later in the story, they bring them back in and they say to them a second time, you need to stop preaching this gospel. And they send them out a second time and they keep preaching this gospel and many thousands in the city of Jerusalem are saved. Now there's this beautiful summary verse of this gospel movement that I'm going to put up here. This is from the second time, that was the story, this is from the second time that they were standing before the religious leaders. And here's what the leaders said to them. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. And yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. We strictly charged you to not preach this gospel, and yet somehow you filled the whole city with talk about this gospel. Okay, I need you to get a hold of this text as we begin today. So uh, both parts of it. So first thing, these Christians lived in a city, in a context that did not want to hear about Jesus or his gospel. Strictly charged you is a very aggressive way of saying the same thing twice. Okay, parents, you know when you want your kids to not do something or not touch something, you say it multiple times. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, do not go to the basement right now. I haven't wrapped your present. That's what this is like right here. Strictly charged. In the, in the Greek, it's the same word like combined together commandingly commanded you, we told you, we told you, we told you, did you not get the message the first time, we don't want to hear about this gospel ever again. 
Everybody knows that Jesus of Nazareth was a blasphemer and a heretic and a fool. Everybody knows this is why he ended up crucified. All you're doing is stirring people up to a false hope that threatens the peace that we have in this city and threatens our place of privilege, although they didn't say that part out loud. We don't want no Jesus talk here. Boom. In the face of that command, in the face of the prevailing mood of the authorities and the influencers and the majority of this city, the second part of this verse is a wicked big surprise. After you read the first part and you hear that they strictly charge them no more gospel talk, you would imagine that the second part of this verse would say something like, so the apostles went home and they huddled in the privacy and the safety of their little Jesus community and they kept their mouths shut and the gospel barely made a dent in this city that didn't want to hear about it. That's what you expect to read. But instead what you get is this. Yet here you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. In other words, somehow the gospel swept through the lives of many people in this city. It, it became front page news. It became water cooler conversation. It became everybody talking about the cross and the empty tomb and and the resurrection, and sin, and grace, and Jesus, and many were finding life in his name. This happened in the city of Jerusalem. If we're going to plant a church together, one of the big questions I get to keep asking you is, do you believe that this can happen here? Do you believe that this verse can happen in our time, in our place? So let's think about it. We too are called to make Jesus and his gospel known in a context in cities that would prefer not to hear about it. There's a lot of reasons for this. One is that Bostonia, Greater Boston, has basically become what we call a decidedly secular place. Decidedly secular place. Here's what we mean by this. We're living on the back end now of a couple or three generations of this social project that has been aimed at removing God, removing Him from our consciousness, from our language, from our schools, from our constitutions, from our ethics, from our lives. There's this weirdness to it uh, because the remnants of a Godwardness are everywhere that we look in Bostonian culture. So there's churches in every city, all up and down the main drags. If you go read the founding statements of many of the universities in our town that are now secular, they're all about Jesus and his gospel and his church. It's craziness. It's wild. The checks and the balances in our government system stem from our belief in the doctrine of original sin and total depravity. The ethics that undergird the civil laws that are now being done away with are rooted in our Christian heritage. All of this emerges from this weird exotic age when Christ was known and loved in this part of the country. But that was then, and this is now. Now, you live here with me, generally, we want nothing to do with the reality of God, the sovereignty of God, 
the creative intent of God, the moral law of God, the inspired word of God, the holy character of God, nothing. And because of that, we generally don't want anything to do with God and his gospel. We could run through 100 examples. I think I gave you one a couple of months ago. If you missed it, two of our kids are in public school. They were learning through a unit on American history and Martin Luther King Jr. Not once did the teacher or the curriculum mention that he was a Christian pastor from a Christian family who studied theology at Boston University and who had the Christian gospel driving him to his preaching. He was a preacher and his pursuit of freedom and and the end of racism. He wasn't a perfect man, but he was a Christian man driven from the gospel. Only a decidedly secular culture would erase that foundational part of this man's story. It was as if someone had said to the teachers and the curriculum writers, we strictly charge you. We commandingly command you. Let's not be teaching anything even sort of connected to God or his gospel. This is our place. We don't want to hear it. This is why one of the primary responses that we receive as church planters, a a new church in a city, is disinterest. Disinterest in God and his gospel. So there's a lot of different responses that we'll get as we live our lives before people as the light of Christ. Easily for me, in the three years that we've been in Melrose, the primary response uh, has been this one. I'm just not interested. We're just not interested. Now that makes perfect sense that that would be the default response. As a decidedly secular people, we are convinced that anybody who believes in God in this day and age is silly or deceived or weak or intolerant or just weird, like religion, religious stuff, aren't we past that? You guys are odd. And nobody wants to be all of those things. And so there is a disinterest in the gospel. We're also in these parts here a very highly accomplished people, right? When you get to that place in your life, you are not looking for massive change in what you've built for yourself. So again, think of where we are sent. By the time you land in these suburbs north of the city of Boston, your life is basically set. That's kind of the way this works. You don't want Jesus or anyone else coming in and messing things up. You have to feel this if you're going to love the people that we're sent to. You've worked very hard. You've studied very hard. You've established your career. You've saved some money. You've bought your house. You've had your kids. You got your dog. You built your deck. Every waking second of your life is filled up with your preferred occupational pursuits and recreational pursuits. The last thing you need is some divine person or loud preacher or church community challenging you on everything that you have built your life around. So your response is, I'm not interested. This is why inviting a Bostonian to a church service 
is like inviting me to a soccer game or a Tupperware party? How many times would you have to ask me before I would go? Infinity. You know that symbol? Because you could keep asking and I'm not going. This is why Tracy and Claire and Millie handed out 60 invitations to the direct neighbors around here and said, hey, on Christmas Eve, we're going to hang out for an hour, sing some songs, celebrate Jesus. Not a neighbor. Not one neighbor showed interest in attending the service. This is why people sometimes press the eject button with you if you're in conversation with them and it starts to creep toward a place of God, Jesus, church. You ever seen those movies where there's a plane and something's wrong and it's about to crash and the pilot flips that thing and pushes that button and all of a sudden they're going this way and the plane continues this way. You've seen that eject button? I can't tell you how many times that has happened with me in conversation. So Grace is teaching me to chit-chat, blah de blah 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 weather and dogs and dog parks and whatever else is famous in Melrose. And then we get to this point of what do you do or why do you live here? Jesus, church, gospel, eject. And I'm still talking over here and also I'm like, where, what happened? Where does that eject button come from? They're out. The conversation's over. There's a disinterest in going to this place of gospel. So it's got to be import, very important that we're all clear on this. In general, this is not every individual person. In general, there is no more impulse to go to church, to, to gather for worship, to open a Bible, to repent of sin, to believe in Jesus in our city. We don't want to hear it. Now, do you view that as an insurmountable obstacle, or do you view that as an awesome opportunity? This text in your Bible, hundreds of others, but this one too, tells me we need to view this as a killer opportunity. The authorities, the influencers, the default posture of Jerusalem, Romans, and Jews was we don't want to hear about this Jesus risen from the dead. And yet somehow, the gospel swept through that city. Okay, so I forbid you from despair. I forbid you from self-pity. I forbid you from complaint about who Jesus has sent us to. Instead, we need to be believing God for this and asking ourselves what needs to be true about us if this is going to have a chance to happen in us, in the movement of our church and churches. So we get there by saying, well, what was true about these apostles and these missionaries that they were able to see something cool happen like this in their day? What kind of a church do we need to be that when our neighbors' lives, neighbors lives fall apart and they become interested in God again and it happens and it's going to happen? or when the Spirit begins to answer our prayer, that there would be broad dissatisfaction with the status quo of people's lives. I pray for that all the time. Will you shake them to interest? Dissatisfaction. When God starts to answer that prayer. Or when you, through your living and loving and serving and pursuing holiness, you trigger curiosity in your neighbors about, man, what in the world is different about you However this happens, that interest comes up and people come into contact with our church and our churches, what needs to be true about us if we're going to see the gospel advance in their lives?
Okay, there's so many things to say. Let's just hit on a few from the text, and then we'll ask Jesus to do this here. So here's one for this year. I'm calling it gospel optimism. So these words are Peter preaching. Who is Peter preaching to in these sermons? He is preaching to people who have rejected and abandoned and crucified the Son of God. The the Savior, the Messiah, came to them and they did not receive him. On a whole, this city put him to death. Now Jesus is risen from the dead in victory. He's back. This is where you expect the gospel to immediately spiral into a script like from one of those revenge genre movies. You know those revenge genre movies? It's like usually the same script. The dad's wife and children are are killed by the bad guys. Now he has nothing left to live for, so what does he do for an hour and a half? He just takes the enemies out one by one by one by one by one until everyone's gone and he's covered in blood and that's the story. You've never seen a revenge genre movie? Okay. So there's this genre of movie called Revenge and that's what I'm expecting to see immediately. You have done this, I have victory, and now my enemies will be vanquished. And there's a reality to that in the gospel, but that's not the heart of the church that's being built here. And I want you to to see this. This is what Peter comes out saying to the people who have sinned so terribly against the Lord. He says to them, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning you, every one of you, from your wickedness. God, who raised Jesus from the dead, has sent him to you, not to take you out, to bless you, to bless you, by turning you from your sin, your wickedness. In other words, there is nothing in Peter's heart that is saying, God's going to get you now, and I hope this goes really bad for you, for what you did to Jesus. No, Peter understands, if anyone does, that the gospel is good news for bad people. It's good news for bad people. Blessing to bless you, that, that word of scripture should just jump off the page at you. It means God intends good for you. God intends salvation for you. God intends life for you. This is the gospel message. Even though it was us who sent Christ to the cross, that cross somehow beautifully is our means of salvation. The Father intended for the death and the resurrection of the Son, and now there is this eagerness in God, this affection in God, this desire in God for sinners to bless them. John, who was standing with Peter, would later say it like this in his gospel, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, not perish, but have eternal life. And then, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Peter and John and the first Christians believed, they believed that God could and wanted to save 
sinners, set them on this new trajectory of holy life. That was the message that they brought to their city. The people that we are sent to need us to be committed to this vision of the gospel right here. The cross and the empty tomb are a blessing for whoever would receive it. I think you know this, but way too often the posture of the church and the Christians in the church toward those whom they are sent to outside of the church is either what I would call pessimism, which is, ah, they're so evil and so backwards and so far from God and so disinterested that nobody's ever going to believe the gospel, pessimism, or antagonism, and I hope they never believe the gospel because I'd like to see the wrath of God fall down on them. Neither were true about the way that Peter and John brought the gospel to this city. Neither can be true about us. We get to be marked by a gospel optimism. As sinful and broken people come into contact with our church, the overriding theme here gets to be we believe that you can change. We believe that God is for you. We believe that God can change you. Okay, so here's my hope for this one, that we would be relentless in believing the good news that God intends to bless us and our children and our cities by convicting and forgiving and and freeing us from sin and rocketing us into holy living that we never thought was possible before. Don't be pessimistic. Don't be antagonistic. Have this verse in your heart this year. I believe God intends to bless those he sent me to by bringing them to new life. How are we doing on that? Okay, next one. Gospel humility. So this is Peter and John talking when everybody was wowed by their healing of the crippled man. It's Peter and John, and everyone's looking at them and going, wow, look what you did. Here's what they said in this story. Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or our own piety we have made him walk? This would never be said in American Bostonian culture, never. We are so unbelievably proud of ourselves and our accomplishments and our degrees and our sophistication and our looks and our skills and our technology and ourselves. It's unbelievable. I was telling the kids, we're the ones who invented the end zone dance, right? Have you seen it now? Before going to their teammates, everybody has 11 different ways of saying, look at me. Right? There's this right here. There's this right here. You'll see them put their hands behind and just cream to the entire stadium. Look at me. This is who we are. We are the masters of the red carpet walk. You know what that thing is? If you're tortured enough to have to watch the Grammys, Oscars, whichever, what is it that has the red carpet? We American celebrities know how to pull up. We look perfect. We know we look perfect. We know how to step out of the limousine. We know how to hold the person who's with us. We know how to put our best features in the camera. We know how to go slow down that red carpet. We know how to make much of ourselves. 
I mean, we invented the selfie, right? I swear that's an American invention. If Peter and John were Americans or Bostonians, nine seconds after healing this crippled man, they would have had that phone up, Peter, John pointing to his leg, Twitter, hashtag, just heal the dude. That's what we would do. We would point right to ourselves and post it for the world to see what we have done. There is none of that in this story. These men are the apostles. They are the senior leaders of this community. God is attending their ministry with blessing, with fruitfulness. And what do they say? Do they go like this? Do they go like this? Do they careen? Do they take a nice slow walk through the crowds with the crippled man? Do they post the selfie of what they've accomplished? No. What do they say? What in the world are you looking at us for? It's not our power. It's not our skill. It's not our excellence. It's not our artisticness. It's not our entrepreneurial aptitude. It's not our articulating skills. It's not our management expertise. We did not manufacture this. This is not about us. And very, very important, it is not our piety. We're not super holy. God didn't pick us because we're cleaner than everybody else. We are not morally superior than anybody else in Jerusalem. No. Why are you looking at us? We are jars of clay. We've been loved by God, accepted by God. We're being used by God. That's all that we are. Okay, this posture right here, our mission, the people we're sent to, desperately need this to be true about some churches in the Boston area. Remember the people who we are sent to, okay? If God does begin to convict and call and compel them to himself, like 90% of that time, that's going to be because their lives are falling apart, right? That's when a Bostonian even begins to think of the scary thing of connecting with God or a Christian or church. By the time we are receiving people in the life of our community, they're going to be messed up and broken, the last thing that they need to do is to arrive in some community where everyone is walking around as if they've got some great power and they've got some great piety. Remember the first time you ever walked into the gym? So you're just scrawny and pathetic and there's not a muscle on your body, but you're like, I got to do something about this. Remember you walk into that gym and immediately that feeling that you get, everybody in the gym is like, buff and jacked and they're all wearing the right clothes and you're like wearing your t-shirt that you graduated high school with, all your classmates that you forget's name is on the back, there's a couple of rips in it. Everybody knows exactly how to use all those machines, like just they're moving around fast and you're like, I don't even know the first thing to do. Everybody's standing about this tall, looking in the mirrors, walking around like this and you're just cowering and if you're like me, you just go, yeah, this is a bad idea. And you quietly, carefully slip out and you leave. I'm not strong enough. I'm not experienced enough. I'm definitely not disciplined enough. I don't fit here. Okay, that can never, never, never happen in the life of our church or our gospel communities. Can't happen. The star of the show here is Jesus Christ. All of us are equally nothing pointing to him marveling in him 
and His grace to us. Why, why would anyone come in here and stare at any one of us as though by our power or our piety, anything good has happened in our lives or our church? No, no, no. It's through the name of Jesus that anything good happens. Okay, so here's my hope for this one, that every single one of us, our visible leaders, our longtime members, first and foremost, right? First and foremost, would never, ever, never, ever, never, for one second, have an air of superiority or having arrived or self-sufficiency, but we would be so convinced that we are nothing, that Christ is everything, that this would be the safest church in the city for broken, sinful people who know next to nothing about gospel grace or gospel truth to just come and say, whoa, I've encountered the power, not of the band, not of the preacher, I've encountered the power of the risen Christ. It's got to happen here. Okay, one more, gospel friendships. So let me give you the context for this verse. The apostles had just spent the most terrifying night and morning of their lives. Can you feel that with me? Terrifying. They had to stand before the highest court in Jerusalem in their day, and all they were were like fishermen and carpenters. And they had like midnight in a cell to like prepare what they were going to say. Terrifying. I don't know how scared you are of public speaking or not. It's a big fear of people. But that's like an intense thing to know tomorrow I'm going to be standing in front of people, and if this doesn't go well, there's going to be trouble. When I graduated from undergraduate college, I gave the commencement speech on behalf of the student body. I was that guy. I did not sleep that whole night because I was like, ah, I'm going to be in the whole stadium, eight, 9,000 people staring at me in my cap and gown trying to say something coherent, and I'm 21 years old, and I'm a moron, and I've been hiding it. No one knows it. Now they're all going to know. And this was a setting where everybody was for me, right? So like my friends in the student body, the faculty that I had spent years with, they were looking for me to succeed in this commencement speech. And really, I already earned my degree. I mean, no matter what happens, I was never flying back to that city in my life again. So I was going to speak, get my diploma, hug my friends, get on a plane, and get out of there. Wasn't too big of a deal. Terrified. Could not sleep. Anxious the whole time. This scene in your Bible is that to the nth degree, they are ill-equipped. They didn't write and memorize their speech beforehand like I did. They're not standing before people who want the best for them. They're standing before people who want them dead and silenced. And they give account to Jesus. They get beat down, beat on hard. Then they get sent out of there. In the midst of all of this emotion, all of this energy, all of this living in mission, all of this uncertainty, all of this insecurity, all of this gospel stuff. Where do Peter and John run to for comfort, for counsel, for support, for encouragement? I'm not sure if they were crying, laughing, celebrating, rejoicing. I think it was a big mix of all of those things. Where do they go? Here's what the text of Scripture says. When they were released, they went to their friends. They went to their friends. I, I love that the word here is not just family language, so we know that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a beautiful metaphor that the Bible uses. But I love that it also uses friends. It's got a different ring to it, right? These are your, 
your buddies, the, the, a commonality is the nature of this word. You belong to these people and they belong to you. You get them and they get you. In other words, this first church community was a safe, understanding, encouraging, there-for-you kind of community. As you read the story, you see this over and over and over again. Gospel friendships undergirded the advance of the mission because they just loved each other so much. They were so close with each other. Even in their most intense times, they ran to each other. Okay, if we're going to be successful in this mission, we just got to be friends like that. We got to be friends like that. Not fly-by-night friends. Our culture knows what that is. Not friends for two years and then something happens and we're bailing out. Our culture knows what that is. Not friends on the New Year's Eve party and the uh, trick-or-treating night and if the Patriots get to the Super Bowl, friends. When everything's good and happy and somebody's buying Doritos. Not friends who are like that. This is different. This is gospel friendship. This is in the trenches friendship. This is there for each other friendship. Here's my hope for this. That somehow we would get to having such an overwhelming ethic of love and selflessness and concern and patience and encouragement and honesty among us that our immediate and happy impulse when life is hard or when mission is taking place and we're unsure about ourselves or we don't know what to do is to run to each other. If we could be that for ourselves and a safe place of that for others, we would have this feel of seeing the gospel just wave upon wave crashing and advancing the mission we have. How are you doing on that? Let's give ourselves to these things this year. Gospel optimism, I am for those we are sent to. I believe God could do something beautiful and I want him to because that's how he is. Gospel humility. I'm coming in last and I'm fixing my eyes upon Jesus and I'm making much of him. And gospel friendships. I got a safe place where people get me. They get my love for Christ, my pursuit of holiness. They get the glory of God in the face of Christ. I'm safe to run to them to celebrate, to cry, whatever it may be. If we give ourselves to these things, I believe that we can see in ever-increasing ways the gospel becoming front-page news on our blocks with our friends as God makes that happen. Let's ask for that together to start the year. Let's do it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that regardless how unpopular the Christian gospel is in our day, and I pray that regardless of the heavy, heavy cost of being labeled a Christian, that we would fearlessly and relentlessly believe and revel in and talk about the gospel. I pray that you would attend that believing and that reveling and that talking about the gospel with so much grace that an awareness of God an interest in God, a desire for God would just sweep through the streets of these cities. We really don't even care if it's our church or the next one. 
I'm just, I'm begging you for it to happen in pronounced ways this year. And I do pray that you would get a hold of the hearts of my brothers and sisters in this room, the people who are a part of this community, that gospel optimism and gospel humility and gospel friendships would all play a small part in seeing a gospel advance through the work of our church. That's what we want to celebrate in 12 months and in the years to come. It's only going to happen if you do an incredible work in us. We cannot give what we don't have, so I pray that you would give it to us for your glory. Hear my prayer for these things. Amen. So that was.